it's hard for me to believe, but it has been 20 years since I graduated from high school. June of 2000. Now, it certainly doesn't feel like it was yesterday. I know that it has been a while. I can see the gray hairs in the mirror, and I feel the aches and the pains in the morning when I get up, but it just doesn't seem like I'm old enough to have graduated 20 years ago. I remember my senior year sort of just flying by, that there was so much to do, so much going on in my life, and as it got closer to the end, it got busier and busier, and there were tests to take, and papers to write, and things to do, and before I knew it, I was sitting in a cap and gown waiting to get my diploma. I remember that night, vaguely, feelings of excitement, feeling of anticipation for what was to come, being just a bit apprehensive as to what the future would hold. But as I look back on that night now, more than anything, I wish that I could have known then what I know now. And today we're taking a special Sunday to celebrate our high school graduates. I've entitled today's sermon, Lessons from Second Timothy, because... This is a special time in their lives. And as I think of the things that I wish I knew back then, I wanted to look at some of the advice that Paul had for Timothy. Advice on things that truly matter. If you would, turn with me to 2 Timothy 3. We're going to begin in verse 1, and we'll be looking at portions of both chapters 3 and 4. So as Paul begins chapter 3, he's going to be looking at the difficult situations that Timothy would be facing, the difficult situations that our graduates will be facing. We'll begin reading verses 1 through 5. But realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious, gossips without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. So for our graduates, as they begin this process of cheering into adulthood, of establishing themselves on their own, this is the world that faces them. When Paul says the last days here, he's not talking about whatever period will immediately precede Jesus' return. He's speaking about the church age, this whole age where we anxiously await the return of Christ that we are in the last days just as Paul was because we don't know when Jesus is returning. So it was bad then and it is bad now. Let's look at this list that Paul has given Timothy. Lovers of self and lovers of money. I think Paul starts off here with pointing out that when you're far from God, you have inappropriate objects for your love that God is the only one that deserves 
our love in the way that Paul's talking about here, but that the world tells us we should love ourselves, that we should elevate ourselves, and we should love money and possessions. He goes on to say, boastful, arrogant, and revilers. As we've looked at in Matthew, our sinful nature drives our pride. And if left unchecked, this is how it manifests itself. Disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy. Disobeying our parents destroys God's natural order that he created for this world. And being ungrateful is a sure sign of pride. And if we're ungrateful to God for what he's done for us, then we won't care about his commands at all, and we will be unholy. Unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good. As these seemingly get worse and worse, I think it sums it up nicely to say haters of good. And as I look in the world today and I watch the news and I see the things that are being promoted and the way that anything to do with the Lord is set aside and put down or mocked, I think haters of good seems to be taking over. Treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Again, if we love pleasure rather than God, we are again misplacing where our love should be. And it's important to know that God doesn't want us to be miserable, but I think there's an enormous difference between joy, true joy that only God can give, and momentary pleasures that we seek. And when we are seeking those pleasures, we don't want our will, we don't want God's will, and we certainly don't want anyone telling us what we want is wrong. And I think that's the idea, or why the idea of God today is so abhorrent. That people don't want to hear that anything is a sin. They don't want to hear that they're accountable to someone other than themselves. Saying things like that to people will get you labeled as a bigot today. Paul then says that they are holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. There are many empty, empty forms of religion today. Even within what we would consider mainline Protestant churches. I remember there was a time when I was working at the funeral home that after the funeral service at the church, I was driving the minister to the cemetery and this was a minister at a very large church that was a part of a very old denomination, a very large denomination. And this minister, as we got to talking about faith, started to tell me how that if I, if I really knew God, I would see that God had sent Jesus to save Christians, and God had sent Buddha to save Buddhists. And God had sent Muhammad to save Muslims. I didn't even know what to say to him. But sometime later, on another drive from a church to a cemetery, another minister from that same denomination but a different church told me that faith in Jesus is good. It's a good start, but it's really how we live our lives that determines where we spend eternity. 
These men were holding to a form of godliness. They held jobs as ministers of churches, supposedly leading people in God's word, but they had completely denied its power, most especially the power of the work of Jesus Christ. I think today the most widespread form of godliness is self-worship, that we are so likely to bow down at the altar in the mirror, and there is no power there. When we elevate ourselves to being our own gods, it is empty and powerless. And then Paul concludes this section by giving Timothy his first command. He says, avoid such men as these. Their lives speak for themselves. Avoid them. Do not associate with them. I think the reason is that as you look back over that list, these are the things that our natural self, our sinful nature, wants to do. And that old saying that it's easier to pull someone down than it is to lift someone up. It's true because it's so much easier to go down. And if you're associating with people that their lives are marked by these things, it is so easy to fall into those traps. And you know, I look back to my late teens and my early 20s, and I cringe at some of the associations I had. People that took joy in leading me astray. Paul is not telling Timothy to never speak with these people or to avoid them at all costs. After all, we are called to be witnesses to the world around us. And as Pastor Ted mentioned last week, we can't just do that by our actions. But do not tie yourself to them. Be a good judge of character. These actions are easy to spot. And whether it's the people you work with or the people you meet in school or even at a church, be discerning of who you form friendships with. Avoid such men as these. So we're going to jump to verse 10 as we continue. Now you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions and sufferings such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So Timothy has followed Paul, not the evil men or the false teachers He's followed him in his teaching, in his conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, but also in persecutions and suffering. And Paul says that indeed all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The important thing that I wanted our graduates to know is that do not think that anything you will face, any trial or persecution, None of this is new. 2,000 years ago, Paul told Timothy that anyone who's living a godly life will be persecuted. If you're choosing your friends wisely, if you are avoiding sin, if you are living a godly lifestyle, you will be persecuted. Again, the sinful world that we live in does not want to be told it's wrong. And it does not always react kindly. Paul does rejoice in the fact that God has always delivered him. 
But as we will look at shortly, when Paul wrote this letter, he was in prison for the last time, and he would be executed soon. We don't face that kind of persecution here, but know that whatever kind of persecution you are facing, and whether or not God delivers you in a way that you can see or the way that you want, that God's plans are good for you. Look at the impact that Paul's persecution had on Timothy. That Timothy saw him get beaten and saw him get stoned and saw all these things happen to him, and yet he saw him be strong in his faith. And what a model that was for Timothy. And what a model it was for the others who saw it happen and saw Paul get up and continue to praise the Lord. And so whatever we face, whatever trials God allows, and whatever way he delivers us, know that as you go through your life that it is good. Our next section is verses 13 to 17 where we will see the foundation of Timothy's faith the foundation of your faith. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving you and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things that you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from you whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So in contrast to these evil men who are deceiving and being deceived, Timothy was to continue in his faith. Now this is Paul's second command in his section. Continue in what you have learned and what you have been convinced of, what you believe. Now, Timothy had been taught the Old Testament Scripture by his mother and his grandmother since childhood. Go back to chapter 1, verse 5. For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. So Timothy has followed Paul. He's followed his teachings and his actions. But the basis of his faith, the foundation that Paul built upon with his teaching, was Timothy's knowledge of the Scripture. There could be no more important of a foundation than knowing the Word of God. And that is what Timothy had. That is what Paul built upon. Paul will continue in verses 16 and 17 to show the importance of of the Word of God. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. All Scripture, Timothy, everything that you have learned is inspired by God. The word there for inspired the idea of God breathed it. That God breathed life into it. In fact, the same Greek word that is used there for inspired is used in the Septuagint in Genesis 2-7 when God breathed life into Adam. 
that when we hold our Bible, when we read these words, that God has breathed his life into it. This is an expression of who he is. Because what you have learned from God, Timothy, it is profitable. Profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training. So use this in your ministry. It's profitable for causing others to understand God's truth. For bringing conviction of error when there has been a deviation. It's helpful for bringing people back to the truth. It's helpful for training someone in the faith like you would train a child. And through that, you as a man or a woman of God will be adequate. You will be set for the task. And every good work should be our goal. Ephesians 2.10, after talking in 8 and 9 about our salvation, Paul says that for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. The mastery and use of Scripture, knowing it, being able to quote it, that's not the end of where we go with this. We don't have the Bible just so we can have a bunch of knowledge. We have the Bible so it can change us and God can get us ready to use for his purposes. Now, I've mentioned it before that I had the great privilege of growing up in a home where I was taught the scriptures. Where I learned and I learned and I learned and I had the privilege of growing up in a church where I was taught the scriptures and I learned and I learned and I learned. And I think of myself at that age when I was 18 and graduated from high school. I had a pretty extensive knowledge of the Word of God, especially for someone that age. I was equipped for the good work, but I didn't do it. I spent years squandering that gift. In hindsight, I really believe that I was running from what I'm doing right now, that I didn't want that work. But Caleb and Carrie, in the short time that I've been here and I've gotten to know both your family some, you have parents who love God's word. Know that that is a blessing. And you have been a part of a church where scripture is held up first and foremost. Pastor Kent was here longer than either of you have been alive, faithfully preaching the word of God week after week. And Pastor Trevor has an intense burden to teach our youth. And he faithfully proclaims God's word. And I'm sure there have been countless others in this church who faithfully serve, who pour into our young people, who have poured into you. Do not waste that gift. You have been given a foundation to build your life upon, a life that will serve God. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, Paul gives Timothy a charge for his ministry. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearance, appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort 
with great patience and instruction. So this is Paul's third command in the, the section here that we've read. But this one is obviously different. The first two he just uses imperatives. He says, do this and do that. When we get here to the beginning of chapter 4, he says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God, the God who is always watching, and of Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead, Jesus who will come back and establish the kingdom and will judge us as believers, not on whether we will spend eternity with him, but what do we do with the life that he gave us? In 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 15, are the works that we've built going to burn up or will they last? We talked about that last week, and I think that's what Paul's getting at here, is that he's giving him this reminder of the importance of your ministry, the gravity of what you're doing, is that Jesus could at any moment come back. And what will you have to show for the work you've done? What will you have to show for the gift you've been given? And he charges him to preach the word. I would say that this verse probably ranks pretty high on the favorite verses for pastors. I remember when I was younger, it was my dad's first computer he had, and it had a screensaver. So the screen would go black, and the words would scroll across the screen, preach the word, preach the word. Now, Paul was speaking to Timothy here as a minister of the word, but I want you to know that the Greek word for preach was to herald, like a town crier. Hear ye, hear ye. In light of the foundation you have been given in the scriptures, like Timothy, this is something you can do no matter what profession you end up in. We must preach the word in season and out of season, continually, always. This is what we need to do, whether it's easy or not. Timothy was to use the word of God to convict those in error. He was to use it to appeal to those who were in sin. He was to use it to encourage those who were doing well. He was able to carry on all these activities patiently and carefully. Verses 3 to 5. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you... Be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. That time has come. And so as you go out into this world, it is so important to stay true to who you are, to what you have been taught, in a world that rejects God's truth. Stay true, pro proclaim his word, herald it to the masses, and through your actions and through what you say, preach the word. Let's briefly look at verses 6 to 8 and see what we have to look forward to. Verse 6. 
For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Again, Paul wrote this while he was imprisoned in Rome, awaiting to be executed. Uh, scholars think that this might have been within weeks, at most months, of when Paul was martyred for his faith. And he knew what was coming. He writes here that he is being poured out, that his time of departure has come. He continues in verses 7 and 8. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. But staring death in the face, Paul was ready, because he knew he had accomplished what God had for him. And he knew that God was going to reward him for his faithfulness. Again, looking back to verse 1, Jesus is going to judge Paul. And Paul will receive a crown of righteousness. He's saying it will all be worth it in the end. I know that at 18, as a high school graduate, it's hard to have an eternal perspective. The here and now can be somewhat overwhelming, and we forget why we're running this race or fighting this fight. But in the light of eternity, anything that we face in this life, it's just a speck. It's so, so temporary. Remember Paul, who had been beaten, stoned, imprisoned, bitten by a snake, shipwrecked, and eventually executed. To him, it was all worth it. To conclude, I want to charge our congregation and I want to charge our graduates. So the congregation, these are words for all of us, and we should listen and act accordingly, but I have a different charge for you in light of celebrating our graduates today. As we look at our graduates and really all of our young people, whether they are staying or going, seek to have an impact on their lives. Think of Paul here and all that he had already taught Timothy and the, the years that they had served together, the example that he had been for Timothy, the things that he had taught him, the way that he had built on the foundation that he had. But as the end drew near, Paul's heart was still concerned with continuing to guide him and encourage him. Timothy was already successfully shepherding the flock at Ephesus, but Paul did not assume that his job was done in regards to Timothy. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he penned these words to Timothy. If we're going to take the time as a church to build up our young people, to teach them from a young age God's word, we can't just let them go and assume that they'll be okay. Even if they leave here and go far away, if you've had a relationship with them, there are so many ways to keep in touch, to encourage, to help guide, to pray for them. And I encourage you, I charge you today to do that. As a church, continually encourage our young people. It is not an easy world they're facing. And a charge to our graduates is very simply, to live this out. Never take for granted what your families or your church have poured into you. Know that the Word of God is profitable for your life. 
know that and take advantage of it. As you begin to face more and more decisions that will shape your future, let the Word of God guide you. In your relationships and in your trials, lean on the foundation that you have been given and preach the Word. Proclaim it. Take what you have been given and share it. And remember, in front of God who is always watching, and Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead, it will all be worth it in the end. I want to read to you this thing I found. It's the difference between a job and a ministry. It says a job is one you choose, a ministry is one Christ chooses for you. A job depends on your abilities. A ministry depends on your availability to God. In a job, you expect to receive. In a ministry, you expect to give. A job well done brings you self-esteem. A ministry well done brings honor to Jesus Christ. In a job, you give something to get something. In a ministry, you return something that has already been given to you. A job well done has temporal remuneration. I got it right the first service. Remuneration. A ministry well done brings eternal rewards. That is what it is all about. As you go forth from here, whether you're in southwest Colorado or wherever life takes you, serve God and proclaim his word. As I think back to my high school graduation, I said that I wish I knew then what I know now. That's it. I wish I could have seen clearly the gift that God had given me of knowing his word. And since I can't go back there and beat that into myself, I pass it on to you. Would you join me in prayer for our graduates? Lord, I thank you for this Sunday where we can celebrate. Where we can celebrate two special young people and the accomplishment that they've achieved. And celebrate their families and the love that they have poured into them and the way they have taught them your word. Lord, I do pray for them as they begin this journey into adulthood that you would remind them often of your grace to them, the faith that they have in you, the good things that your word has to tell us. Keep them strong in their faith, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray.